0: Well, your Bibles are open to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. What do you say we interact again with this text? Let's understand more about the difference between the myth of autonomy and the miracle of baltonomy. Ah, there's that word again, right? Can you say it with me? Baltonomy, we made it up. We like that word. We like words we make up, right? It simply is this uh, word that kind of sums up the main goal of our series. I would say it's the it's the thought of these nine verses that close 1 Corinthians six, that we do not belong to ourselves, but we belong to God. We're not autonomous. We are autonomous. We've been purchased. In fact, I gave you last week, kind of in one sentence, what was our goal for this entire series in January? It's that we would live increasingly like a autonomous people who serve at the pleasure of the one who purchased us. This is really the central theme. Of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. We saw last week that, that God owns our body. and We clarified how we should see it and how we should use it based on his purchase of it. This week we're going to uncover what's underneath that baltonomous lifestyle. Because there's something even deeper than just baltonomy. There's something that gives weight to that. We're going to see that this week, we're going to see it through three questions that Paul asks in verses 15 through 17, and then one answer he gives. So three questions and one answer will be our focus this morning. In fact, when I was growing up, my parents utilized questions in a great way. We'd come to the dinner table, and I might have a question about a difficult subject. I might, have a, I might be pondering something or wondering why this happened, or why is it this way, or how come this occurred? And my parents were just really um, smart in not always answering bluntly, but often asking me a question on the heels of my question. And some of you know I employ that tactic a lot as well. And sometimes it's questions that get us thinking, even if they're rhetorical, about why we're asking the question to begin with. And so I want to employ that tactic as well through Paul's usage of three questions in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 15 through 17. I think they're great tools for learning. So let's look at those together. Can we? Here are the three questions and then one answer. We'll unpack this a bit. My plan today is to kind of help us see what he says in this text, make a strong case for the doctrine being taught here, and then that'll be kind of like halftime, and then I want to kind of move to maybe applying that for a bit. So are you with me? Are you going to hang in there for the whole thing? I think you will. Let's read these three verses, can we? It begins in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? The assumed answer there is what? Yes, we do know that. Then he asks another question. The assumed answer here is no. Look what he says. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? The assumed answer is what? No. In fact, Paul goes beyond that and says the answer is never Meaning that it's not just no in the moment. The sense of this word in the original language is, may it never be. May this never occur. So we have the first question, yes, we understand we're members. And in fact, I would circle the three times you see the word members there. Members in verse 15, uh, three times. Just circle that. He answers the second question with a no, an emphatic one. And then in verse 16, the third question, or do you not know that... He who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. Circle the word join there, would you? And then he appeals to Genesis for the idea of this oneness. He says, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Verse 17, here's your statement. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Circle the word joined, would you, in verse 17. And so the first question has an assumed answer of yes. The second question has an assumed answer of no. The third question has an assumed answer of yes. And he follows all that up with a statement. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. In fact, you may want to circle the word one. It's also a prominent word in these three verses. So you find some repeated words, don't you? You find the word members mentioned three times. You find the word one mentioned three times. You find the word joined mentioned twice. What's going on here in these three questions in one state? And Paul is is describing, he's explaining for us the unthinkability, the um, unreasonableness that we would sexually sin in a physical way when we should already know that we have been joined to God in a spiritual way. And he says, don't you know that you're members of Christ? The word members there simply means a body, limb, or a part. It's not hard to figure that out, right? It simply means there's a smaller part of a larger unit. The idea of joined means to stick to, to adhere, to cling. He draws the word join here from Genesis 2. The word there is cleave. So you don't think about something just barely attached when you hear join or cleave or cling. You think about something just really entwined, don't you? And so what Paul is saying is here, guys, don't you realize sinning sexually, and I might add just sinning in general, but he uses sexual sin here as the, as the one in, in view because of its physical in, intertwinedness. Is that a word? Because of its, its oneness. He says, wow. It's unthinkable that you could take your members, what's been joined to Christ, and then do that very same thing with something that's not of Christ. He said it's unthinkable. That's why he asked these rhetorical questions. Guys, don't you know your members? Don't you know you're joined to God? Should we put them to a prostitute? Yes, no, yes, is his answers. And so he's just describing the unthinkable nature. Of taking what actually belongs to, is joined to, is in union with Christ. And then just without thought or regard to that union, putting it in union. And here he's speaking sexually with someone else. He said, it's crazy. It's unthinkable and it's wrong. Which is why he would say in verse 18, the very first phrase is, flee from sexual immorality. That's for next week, okay? But I'm just laying groundwork this week. But he's kind of showing us some real fundamental doctrine about who we actually belong to and who we're united to. He's giving us the the foundation for baltonomy that we are members of, we are one in spirit with, we are joined to Christ. And so essentially, Paul here is declaring the doctrine of union with Christ. Will you say those three words with me? Union with Christ. This is what's highlighted and illuminated here in these words that I unpacked for you. Members joined and won. Paul is just driving at one thing. The doctrine of, the, of union with Christ. And the reason is because he's, he's trying to impress upon these people the unthinkableness of becoming united with something that's not of Christ. In fact, I find this kind of interesting. Paul uses a negative example, prostitution, and joining with a prostitute, sex outside of God's marital guidelines. He uses that to actually describe and talk about union with Christ. That's odd, isn't it? He uses a negative to highlight a positive. That's what's happening here. He's showcasing the depth and seriousness of our union with Christ. Now, next week, I'll talk more about the seriousness aspect of this. Okay, This week, I just want to tackle the doctrine of union with Christ. I realize that that's probably something that many of you may not have heard of. You may think, well, I've, I've never heard of that doctrine. And, and rightly so. We've not taught on it very much here. In fact, a few months ago, I apologized to you for not addressing that critical doctrine more. It's an it's a, it's a fundamental concept and doctrine that actually supports a lot of other doctrines. In fact, you won't find the phrase union with Christ specifically mentioned in the Bible as a doctrine. It doesn't say like justification or adoption, regeneration, sanctification. It's not quite like that. And yet, watch this church, listen very carefully. There are, and it's safe to say this, I'm probably on the, on the lower end of this. There are over 175 mentions of the phrase, in Christ, in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, or that Christ is in us, he dwells in us. Over 175 of those. It's a constant thread in the New Testament. So what we'd say is this. While it not, might not be specifically like labeled as union with Christ, it's, it's understood and in some sense assumed. And that may be one of the reasons that in our culture, we've kind of not talked about it much, because it's actually an assumed an assumed understanding that Paul has the New Testament writers and that Jesus even preached. That we're in Christ and he's in us. We are united with him. And it forms the underpinning for so many other doctrines. And So this we're going to talk about today a little bit. I'll give you some definitions for it. I'll give you some practical applications of it. And I hope that what you'll do is come away this morning not with less fervor for pursuing holiness, but more. You'll see this doctrine as fundamental to your pursuit of what we said last week, of actually sinning less in 2020. So here's a simple definition. You've seen it for a few minutes already. What is union with Christ? Let me just give you, to start off with, like a definition of it. It's alluded to, like I said, hundreds of times in the Bible. I think it's what Paul is alluding to in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, Here's a definition of it. It's the present realities, and we use that word in a plural sense because two things are in play here. The present realities of the risen Christ indwelling the believer's life, that's on one hand, and then immersing the believer's life into himself. So two things, Christ in us and us in Christ. Say that with me, Christ in us and us in Christ. That's the union part, that's the realities And and so when this happens, it happens by the Spirit so that those believers receive every benefit of salvation from start to finish. One of the classic passages would be Ephesians 1, in which the words in Christ are kind of like the tags upon every doctrine taught in Ephesians 1. You should check it out. Just read it in your small group this week with your family. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. In Christ, he has loved us, Ephesians 1 says. Also, also Romans 8, 1 through 11, a classic passage on, on the in-Christness that's going on and how it affects ever the other doctrine. So it's really uh, us in Christ and Christ in us. This is a little fancier way to say it, okay? But it's the twin realities of these things. It's by the Spirit. It's in our life. And it's really what, what, um, what kind of describes us from start to finish in experiencing every bit of the beautiful blessings in Christ. In fact, Ed read this for us earlier. He didn't know he was preaching. Well, he knew he was preaching on this, but I didn't know he was going to read that verse. But what does Ephesians 1 say? God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, say with me, in Christ. So you don't get a thing if you're not in Christ. There are no blessings outside of Christ. There's common grace, Yes. But there's none of these these blessings that that God has planned to bring to his people. They're all in Christ. And when you're in Christ, man, you receive every blessing because you're in Christ. So here's the simple definition. Try to kind of keep it with you. Take a picture of it. This is what we're looking at. This is the doctrine that I don't want you to disconnect from. Don't think, man, this is more like a seminary class. I feel like I'm in a lecture. Just just, uh, avoid that tempting thought. Because we never behave differently than what we believe. And the reason some of you are behaving wrongly is you believe wrongly. So let's attack the root. Let's begin to believe correctly. And on this doctrine, this is very important to our baltonomy. Let me show you some verses that describe this doctrine. Okay, I'll give you four quick ones. There's a hundred and... 60 plus mentions of this phrase in Christ, Christ in us, in Christ Jesus, in Jesus Christ. Here's just four as an example. 1 Corinthians 1.30. I want you to read with me the underlying portion of each verse. Can you do that? And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So the verse is saying that all these things that Christ is and offers, we have those because we're What? In Christ. See, it's a fundamental, underpinning doctrine. Here's the next verse. Colossians 1, 27. This addresses the other angle. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So in one verse we have, we're in Christ. In this verse, explicitly stated, Christ is in us. Now here's two verses that describe both of these in the same verse, John 15, four and five. Say it, church, abide in me and I in you. And he goes on to explain that a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. So the idea of remaining in Christ, abiding in Christ, are synonyms for this idea of union with Christ. And look at 1 John 4:13. By this we know that, say it, we abide in him and he in us. Because he's given us of his Spirit, so that's why we say in the definition, union with Christ are the twin realities of Christ in us and us in Christ by the Spirit, and it's through that that we enjoy every blessing and benefit of salvation from start to finish. So the Bible explicitly talks about this, but it it never says in a certain place, "This is the doctrine of union with Christ." It doesn't say that, okay? But it's so taught; uh, it's it's it so permeates every. Bit of the scriptures and all of our doctrines are part of this so there's just some verses about it and it, in a nutshell it's just we're in christ and christ is in us so maybe you're wondering so what does this have to do with autonomy, or what does this got to do with autonomy and dealing with the root of my sin glad you asked the answer is everything here's why i believe union with christ is the fundamental essence of autonomy. Union with Christ is the fundamental essence of baltonomy. And it's my assertion today, and I'll show you many more scriptures and make the case very strongly, that union with Christ foundationally replaces sinful autonomy with biblical baltonomy. That if you're wanting to attack sinning, you desire to sin less in 2020, the thing to attack is your Myth that you're autonomous and to realize you're actually Bautonomous. And what undergirds and supports Bautonomy is the doctrine of union with Christ. So I'm trying to really pour some cement into the footers of your faith this morning. It's not something we see a lot. We don't talk about it much. Probably we should more, but it's kind of like in your house. You live in the first floor, or the second floor, or maybe the basement, but you don't see a lot of the footers and the foundation that. You don't see those, but you're thankful they're there, aren't you? This is the union with Christ doctrine. Man, it's so foundational. It's not seen much. It's uh, it's the footings upon which we live. And the better and clearer we understand this, the clearer we'll be on how to live. Now, before we get to this idea of seeing it doctrinally, Let me just ask you to um, think through a question. So just kind of hang on to this image or just stay right there. That's a good idea right there. If you want to deal with sin's deep root, here's a statement first of all. If you want to deal with sin's deep root, you've got to delight in your union with Christ. Just know this first of all. This is why it's so important. This is why union with Christ is fundamental because if you want to deal with sin's deep root, you've got to delight in your union with Christ. It's really what fuels attacking sin, okay? We say it like this. If you want to resist sin, you've got to rest in your relationship with Christ. And here's the question I want to ask you. Because it's one of the ways you can tell which way you lean. Do you lean more towards autonomy and that myth? And you find yourself sinning more because you think you're your own master? Or do you find yourself leaning towards autonomy? Here's the question to ask. Am I running or resting? You see, all of us are either running from or to something or resting in and with someone, every single person in this room. There are no exceptions. You're running from something or running to something to try to get approval, escape, deny, impress, or you're resting in someone, and with someone? Jesus. That question will kind of help you figure out, do you lean more towards autonomy? And so then in our running to something and running from something, we find ourselves sinning because we're trying to impress people, you know, and and win their approval, make them happy. Or we find ourselves more resting in what Christ has done for us, understanding we're bought people. And that frees us and releases us from the, the plague of approval, you know? So ask yourself this question. I found it to be very helpful in self diagnosis. Am I running or resting? And resting is just another way to talk about the doctrine underneath autonomy, which is the doctrine of what? Union with Christ. Let me give you some things about it doctrinally and then practically as we kind of land the plane here for a bit. Doctrinally, union with Christ is like a necklace on which all the diamonds of salvation hang. All right? I'm trying to create some metaphors because this is a hard doctrine to kind of get your hands around. It permeates the scripture, but we don't have like clear labels for it sometimes. It's just woven through everything. So the best way to picture it, I think, is to see the doctrine of Christ as a, as a necklace on which all the diamonds of salvation hang. For instance, it's because we're in Christ that we are justified. Did you know that? So there's a diamond of salvation, justification. But it wouldn't happen if we weren't in Christ. Same thing's true for adoption, regeneration. You can go through the many doctrines in Ephesians 1, Romans 8. They hinge, they hang on being in Christ. And so I just kind of want you to picture union with Christ as a beautiful, doctrinal, theologically fashionable Necklace that that you should don every day and wear. Because on it hangs every bit of your salvation experience. Let me give you a few facts about this doctrine. I think will help you understand it more. About this necklace that we're wearing. Union with Christ is, first of all, it's spiritual. Okay, What I mean by that is, it means we're one with the Lord in spirit. Here's why I say that word to you, because I don't want you to think it's mystical or metaphysical. In other words, it's not something that is uh, you know oozy, woozy, fuzzy, wuzzy. It doesn't mean like there's some pantheistic belief going on where God just kind of comes in and suddenly God is everything, God is in everything, and it's like woo-doo-doo-doo-doo. It's not what's happening. It's, it is... Um, spiritual, thus supernatural, but it's not mystical. In fact, as you study the doctrine, I'd encourage you, there. I'm going to put out a blog this week with several books recommending, uh, recommending several books on this subject. Uh, there's wide agreement that in union with Christ, we retain our individuality, and yet there is this unity. How that occurs is beyond my ability to think, Okay. That's, that's an infinite issue, but we know it exists. And I would say it's somewhat mirrored. And be careful here how we make this analogy. But it's somewhat mirrored in the Trinity. In that the Trinity, we know it's one God in three persons. And there's distinct personages with, with uh, personality and functionality that are clear, clear and, and different. And yet there is one God. So in union with Christ, there is... Uh, an individual person called the believer. He's in Christ and there's an individual uh, person of the Godhead who's in the believers, the Holy Spirit. So there's, it's not like this fuzzy wuzzy again. This, it's, it's not meant to be that way. It's, it's it's, just a spiritual matter. It's supernatural, yes, but it's not mystical. I'm like, oh man, I'm now one with the universe. That's not what's going on here, okay? So we use the word spiritual The second reason is we use the word spiritual because it is by the Holy Spirit this happens. By the Holy Spirit and with our spirit. So the word spiritual is just a really good word to use to kind of describe union with Christ. It's also declarative or judicial. In other words, Romans 8.1 says this, that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So when we're in Christ, something forensic happens. Something judicial happens. God declares us righteous even though you are not. How does that occur? It's because when he looks at you, if you're in Christ, guess who he sees? Christ Jesus. And that's a gift, church. If you looked at me, you looked at Aaron, Jake, Keith, Greg, Bob, you know what he'd see? He, He should see all of our sin pile up against us. But instead, because we are, say it with me, in Christ, who does he see? He sees Jesus and all of his perfection and righteousness. That's called the gift of salvation. So that's why, in, in one sense, union with Christ is a very forensic, judicial matter. God just declares Jason is righteous, not because of anything you've done, but because you're in Christ, he sees Jesus. We're covered by the blood. We're in Christ. That's a beautiful, beautiful thought and gift, all right? So it is spiritual. It's by the Holy Spirit, but it's also declarative, judicial. It's God declaring things that are true because of Christ. It's also very personal. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So it's singular. It's like very vertical between you and God. A new creation occurs when you're in Christ. It's progressive, progressive. Uh, but it still is occurring. Old things are passing and new things are coming, that verse says. This speaks of your singular individual relationship with Christ, but it's also corporate in that you belong not only to Christ, but when you're in Christ, you belong to other folks in Christ. Did you know that? First Corinthians chapter 12 speaks of our membership in the body of Christ and that we belong to Christ and to each other. So this speaks to the horizontal aspect of union with Christ. And then lastly, I would say it's vital. In fact, John 15 says this, without me, you can do 15 things. doesn't say that, does it? Okay, without me, I'll let you get by with three things. No, without me, you can do no thing. So nothing of eternal significance or importance happens in our life unless we're abiding in Christ and he's abiding in us. John 15, four and five is after the talk about the vine. He's the vine, we're the branches. And so the sap flows through him to us. There's this this incredible connectedness and it's even deeper than being connected. We're we're intertwined. And unless that's occurring, nothing of significance eternally happens. And what most American Christians think is this, I can't do anything of, of value. I can't do many things of value without Jesus. I can do a lot. But I guess the big stuff, I need Jesus. That's not true. That's a myth as well. Autonomy is a myth. And the fact that you can do anything of value eternally is a myth. You can do nothing without Jesus. So do you see why being bought and being purchased and being, having a autonomous lens to our life is so important? The Holy Spirit's in us, gifting us, empowering us. He's the source for every bit of anything significant we want to do. This is all part of union with Christ. So It's a necklace and I just want to invite you to put it on and and, and actually it's on you. Just realize you're wearing it. And it's not unfashionable. Man, it's a beautiful necklace on which all the aspects of salvation hang. It kind of supports. It's the hinge to all the doctrines of salvation. Union with Christ. What a beautiful concept that permeates the scripture. So just kind of keep in mind doctrinally. That's kind of what it is, and these are things that describe it. I admit to you, it's hard to grasp this, okay? But I'd encourage you, don't underestimate the amount of times we see that phrase in Scripture and just cling on uh, to this truth. Hold on to it. You are in Christ. So what does it look like practically, Todd? Well, here's the best metaphor, I think, for the practical understanding of union with Christ. It would be the word immersion. So if doctrinally speaking, we're going to picture it as a necklace on which all the diamonds of salvation hang, that none of this can happen unless we're in Christ, here's kind of how I see it practically, that we experience an immersion. And I draw that from Romans chapter six, verse three, in which the apostle Paul says, you were baptized into Christ. The word baptized in the Greek language is the word uh, to dip. So it means to immerse. And so when we are in union with Christ, watch this. Every bit of our life happens in this experience. We don't like go and do something and then we do something else that's not in Christ. We don't like have our life compartmentalized or segmented, like, okay, now I'm going to work. That's really in my job. I'll come home and this will be in my family, and then I'll go to church. That will be in Christ. That's not how it works. Every bit of your life is experienced in Christ, which is why in 1 Corinthians 6, he was so astounded. They could imagine that sinning with a prostitute would not be taking the members of Christ and engaging them in the sin. It was unthinkable because all of your life happens in union with Christ. It's an immersion. Now, because it's an immersion... We can also use the word organic. It's from the inside out. It's completely enveloping. There's some things that you'll begin to experience as you understand your union with Christ. So I want you to watch. Here's four of them. This is not all of them. But here's four that I think would speak to us at First Family well. I hope this is really going to be rattling for you. I really do. I've been praying all week that this would be one of those kind of a cage-shaking moments for some of us. As you understand more about union with Christ, four things at least will begin to happen. First of all, you will develop new affections inwardly. Now remember, affections is why you want to do what you do. Every ear listening, don't hear what I'm not saying. Hear exactly what I'm saying. We often look at what we do and we look at the want to behind the what. Those are all good. But affections are very deep things in our life. And affections refer to why we want to do what we do. So if, if you find yourself drawn to sinning all the time, if you find yourself drawn to those types of activities and thoughts, and there's never any hint of wanting to get out of that lifestyle, your issue is not, that it's not what you do. The issue is why do you not want to do something different. You see, you have an appetite issue. You have a craving issue. Not just an action issue. And when you're in union with Christ, what you'll find is gradually over time, you will have new appetites. And appetites always feed action. And the reason some of you are consistently involved in sinful actions is because you don't have any real spiritual appetites. Now, only you can answer the question Why? Maybe you do have the seed of God in you, and you've just never watered it and nourished it. could be. Maybe you don't have the seed of God in you, and you're not really born again. And so you don't have the capacity to even have an appetite for spiritual things. These are questions only you can have with the person in the mirror, all right? As your pastor, I want to encourage you to have those conversations. Because union with Christ in inevitably means at some point we will begin to see new appetites develop. Now listen very carefully, church. I want to give you a very pastoral comment. and I can sense right now even God's Holy Spirit just really helping me think through this and talk through this, and I want you to hear this well. In the Bible, we are confident and we know without any doubt that God's seed always produces God's fruit. Always. You can see that in Scripture, and I can take you to Matthew 13. We can, we can blatantly say that, but here's what we don't have in Scripture. We are never given a timetable for that. Did you know that? We're never given a timetable. God never says that when I put my seed in you in six months, man, it'll sprout, and you'll have all these new appetites and actions. All we know from Scripture is God's seed always produces God's fruit. The question is, how long does it take? And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know. In some people, it seems to take decades. Do you know that? But eventually, God's seat bears God's fruit. In some people, it takes like months. There's some people, it took like minutes. <laughs> it's like, what happened to you? And so there's a spectrum of how God changes over time. Wouldn't you agree with that? Here's what I'm saying to you. The question to ask is not rooted in comparison to other people. Well, they changed in three months. They changed in six months. They only did a year. It's taken me 10. That's not the question. The question to ask is, are there appetites in me that want to know God, that want to see sin have less hold of my life and righteousness and and holiness more gripping of me? Are those appetites there? And only you know the answer to this question. If they're not there, the Bible would say that you're not born again you don't have the appetites from the Holy Spirit, from God. So no wonder you can't change. You may try for a season. You may white-knuckle it for a while. You may see some progress by turning over a new leaf, but that never lasts. Why? Because you don't have the Holy Spirit's power, the, it, the, the risen Christ indwelling you through his Spirit. You don't have that. So you can't deal with sin's deep root. And my admonition in this point is this. When you know you're united with Christ that this necklace upon which all the doctrines of salvation hang, when you know that is, that's, it's, you're immersed in that, there will be a gradual increase of appetites for the things of God. You'll begin to seek those things which are above, Colossians 1 says. I think this is one of the root problems in the American church. That we've systematized genuine discipleship in Christianity into an external list of activities. I do these four things. I go to this church. I'm in this small group. I check off this list. And I'm not saying those things are bad, but those things, don't, those things don't necessarily say you're a Christian. Did you know that? Lost people can go to a church building, join a small group, and read a page in a book called the Bible. But lost people don't want to do those things Over the long haul. That's what I'm saying. And what indicates you belong to God is not always an action, but really the deeper appetite. And those are only changed because we're in union with Christ. I hope you heard all this well. I really do. We are given new appetites inwardly so that we can fight temptation outwardly. Because we all know that even though we're a autonomous people and we're in Christ, within our body still remains sin. So how do we fight sin outwardly? How do we live and battle the temptation that comes at us every day? It has to be because we're in Christ and he's given us new appetites inwardly. And so we'll find the second one begins to happen, that we'll defeat sin progressively. That we won't be continuously giving in and, and under the chokehold and stranglehold of the same old sins, decade after decade. It doesn't mean we don't struggle and that we're not tempted. But Romans 6, 3 and 4 says it pretty plainly. Because we've been baptized into Christ, watch this, last phrase, walk in newness of life. The word walk there is an action verb. It means your, your conduct, your way of life. So church, let's just hear the Bible plainly. When we've been baptized into Christ, there is a point in which we will behave differently. I think there's two other things I want to mention here. We'll endure suffering joyfully, even death hopefully. I mention those specifically because they are in the New Testament said to be actions that occur because we're in Christ. Did you know that? We die in Christ. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that beautiful? And it's because we are in Christ, even when we die, that we can grieve with hope. Paul said in Philippians 3 that he wanted to be found in Christ and then to enjoy the fellowship of his sufferings. But who prays that way? I want to be found in Christ so that I can experience the the suffering that Jesus experienced. (laughs) But that's what Paul was praying. So do you see how both of these things, suffering and even death, are connected to being in Christ? And you won't make it through those. You won't endure those. You won't face those well if you're not in Christ. And lastly, we even long for Christ's return expectantly when we're in Christ. John would say that whoever has this hope in him purifies himself. So there's this sense in which, again, our life from start to finish as a Christian is rooted in the fact that we're in Christ. And there's so many more references than just these to all the benefits of being in Christ and this is only possible because we've been purchased. We are a bought people. And so we view life through a baltonomous lens. It's a powerful union. He's bought us unto himself. So there it is again. Here's the doctrine of union with Christ and autonomy merging. And so I give you again our big idea for this week as we wrap things up. Here's the big idea. That, that is union with Christ that foundationally replaces sinful autonomy with biblical baltonomy. And if you want to begin to attack sin's deep root, if you want to deal with that, you must delight in your union with Christ. You must realize the necklace you're wearing. And every bit of God's blessings in your life from salvation to sanctification, they hinge and hang on the fact that you're in Christ. You're members of his body. You're joined to him. You're cleaving to him. He's cleaving to you. You're in him and he's in you. This is fundamental and foundational. Church, I would plead with you that if you want to resist, it's in this relationship you've got to rest. If you want to live for him, he's got to live in you. This is union with Christ. It undergirds every bit of our understanding of baltonomy. So would you stand with me and read one final verse that describes this doctrine so well? Galatians 2.20. One of these summary verses that I think does a great job of saying both and sends us out on the marching orders. Would you read with me, church. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.